0: Good morning. It's great to see everybody today. Um, Yes, go to the retreat. (laughs) Let me just emphasize that. If I were texting, it would be all caps and exclamation points, about ten of them. Not that I'm screaming, but I'm just, you know, emphasizing. So um, anyhow, let me go ahead and pray for us this morning. Lord, we are so grateful that you are our mighty king. And we do pray that you would come and bless us And give your word success. You are a a spirit of holiness on whom we are completely dependent, Lord. Descend on us. Help us to, um, through our time together, know you in greater ways. And to just yearn and to hunger and to thirst to worship you more. I pray that um, the words that you have given uh, me to speak today would Just point the ladies to Christ, because that's really what's important. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Before I came to the Reformed faith, I thought that prayer, church attendance, um, singing in the choir, ministry at a tutoring center, chaperoning youth on a missions trip to Mexico, those were spiritual things. On the other hand, running errands, cleaning a bathroom, (laughs) which is not my favorite, Attending grad school, um, paying bills, were secular things, and I was kind of living in two spheres. There was a church life, and there was that secular life. Well, one weekend as a single adult, I attended a conference where Michael Horton was speaking, and my, divided, my thinking of a divided life, um, one spiritual and one secular, was really challenged. Um, Horton convinced me through the truth of God's word that all of life is spiritual to be lived um, from God— through God and uh meant to glorify God. I am you are a worshipper and that worship will either be directed uh towards God or not. Okay, let me pause for 1 second. Y'all have outlines on the table. I totally forgot. <laughs> So, those outlines are there, and then thank you, Jennifer Sepperdockc. She saw that we needed I, the scripture needed to be printed out, and she did that, so I appreciate that so much so um, we 're all worshipers, and either worship will be directed towards God or not. We only have two choices, and since then, um, I have come to grow in my understanding. Um, because every aspect of life I know now has been ordained by God and is under God's um, sovereignty. There's not a divide or opposition between what we might see as more of a secular portion of our lives um, versus a spiritual one. So in this way, the gospel is transformative in our day-to-day lives and gives us the ability to make every seemingly purposeless or purposeful or difficult task and opportunity to worship done through him and offered to him in submission so folding the ever increasing Mount Everest pile of laundry can seem never ending but it can be sweetened by praying for those little ones whose PJs you were folding. Planning and cooking healthy meals can strain my brain to limits of creativity, but praising God that he's provided food for us to eat um, and that I know the physical nourishment I'm providing my family will help them grow healthy and strong encourages me to keep making meals. Um, midnight telephone calls, and this is where life is now, with college children can be draining as they expose my idol of early, early to bed um like crawling like ready to be there at seven o'clock at night lack of wisdom especially at nine o'clock at night and inadequacy um you know though I can I'll give that to the Lord submit that to him and draw him and draw my uh, dependence from him and praise him when I can stay awake the words that come out actually make sense and they're not my own invention, and I'm able to overcome that. So in this chapter, Chapter 2, Made for Worship, Fox is building the foundation for our study. And she wants um, to, us to understand how important it is to know that we're worshipers, what worship is, before we start talking about the idols of the heart, which is the title of the book. And so we'll, we'll do a couple of chapters of preparation. It's kind of like, you know, you build the foundation of a building. So we're, this is our foundation we're laying, and then we're going to build... On that. Um, and understand that our chapter today, we're, we're created as beings to worship, and what we worship has staggering implications, not just for us, but for our children, who will become the next generation. They are the next generation of worshipers and followers of Christ. So this is not only for us, it's also for our children. Now, um, like a careful lawyer in a courtroom, Fox poses um, questions, and then using the defense of the scripture, she answers them um, to ma- to maintain the case that all men and women were made for worship. It's her belief um, that worship is foundational for studying the idols of the heart. So um, I loved her outline. I thought it was fantastic. So open up your books if you would like, and I'm going to go section by section, but I don't want to just... You know when you're in class and the teacher just kind of reads it for you and it just is not very, I don't know, I didn't care for learning that way. Um, So what I did was I took each section and I changed it to a question because I think in each section she's answering a question. And so those questions are actually the outline for today. And those five questions are, why was I created? What is worship? Is God worthy of worship? If God is worthy, why doesn't everybody worship Him? And what is the solution for those um, created to worship but are bound by sin? Well, in the very beginning paragraphs of the chapter, Fox poses the question why were we created? Yes. Oh, my goodness, I forgot it. Okay, so here's my outline. I apologize. That was my brain. No, thank you, Tammy. I love that. And I always tell my, my students at, at co-op, Mrs. Phillips is really going to make some mistakes. So if, if it looks weird or it's misspelled, which is usually my mistake, just raise your hand and tell me, and we will work it out. No, I didn't copy it. I went upstairs and I started chatting with Carol up there. <laughs> I just <laughs> forgot about it. Okay, so this is my outline. And actually, it's going to follow the chapter headings. So I'm just kind of, I'm turning the, the, or excuse me, the not the chapter. Yeah, the headings in your chapter. I just changed to questions just to kind of toss it up a little bit. Why was I created? What is worship? Is God worthy of worship? If God is worthy, why doesn't everybody worship him? And what is the solution for those who were created to worship but bound by sin? And I will have Hope send that outline to you later today. Um, Just message me because I will forget. (laughs) So anyway, so in the beginning of the chapter, um, Fox says why we were created by God and we were created by God to worship. And we all understand that um, as human beings, we are worshipers. Um, And that's no surprise. I mean, think about how many world religions you can name off the top of your head. Judaism, Hinduism, Taoism, Christianity, Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, Scientologists, a lot of them. Um, And any trip to your local Barnes & Noble bookstore would offer a variety of titles on religion and spirituality. I really like this one. The Buddha drove a Bentley. I've not opened the book. I just thought it was an interesting title. Um, Another one, Hands of Light, a guide to healing through human energy field. Ecological spirituality, the awakened brain, the new science of spirituality, and the quest for an inspirational life. In addition, we see the worship and pursuit of idols apart from religion. We worship gods. We worship self. We worship people. We worship material items. We worship ideas and philosophies. We worship strong passions and desires. We worship our time. We worship control. We worship exercise and body image. And of course, each thing we worship sets us on a trajectory with inevitable and sometimes catastrophic outcomes. Um, And so we know that we were created by God to worship, but what were we created to worship? Well, we were created by God to worship God by God, and we know the Bible as our rule of faith and practice makes that really clear. Um, and, of course, the, the story of the, the Bible, of course, is a story of God, but it's also the story of worship. They, uh, people either worshiped God and it brought death, or they worshiped um, sorry they, they worshipped idols and it brought death, or they um, worshiped, I, worshiped God and it brought life. Well, our confession, the Westminster Confession, asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, and that is worship. Now, um, Fox starts with the Westminster Confession, which is super familiar to us who attend second. But for those who do not, let me just take a minute just to talk about the confession, just a few points, Um, because I, I... Again, I don't want to set people up to think that we are following the confession as scripture, but it's where she starts. And I think a lot of times in our Reformed writings, people start there, but it's just helpful to explain why we do that. So over 400 years ago, the Church of England was in the grips of political, social, and church upheaval, and it sought to rebuild and unify the church on doctrines of scripture. So a group of clergy was gathered for five years between... um, 1643 and 1648. And we call that the Westminster Assembly of Divines. And they created six separate documents for unifying the church on issues of doctrine. Um, And um, that was... That now is the Westminster Confession, and the catechism is what we use to train our children. We don't command you to follow the Westminster Confession, but the Confession gives clarity to doctrine in Scripture that we are commanded to trust and obey. And so Fox begins with this question, and the the the, those who wrote wrote the um, Confession also, what is the chief end of man? And they drew the answer to that question from the pages of Scripture, the chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And here are some passages. Isaiah 43, 7, Everyone whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Psalm 96, 3, Declare his glory among the nations his marvelous works among the peoples. And First Peter 4.10-11, to 11, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And when we consider that our chief end is to glorify and, and enjoy God, the implications are staggering. The gifts God gives us, the daily tasks God gives us, the place where we live and interact with neighbors and our families, in raising our children, in sickness and in health and joy and sorrow, in times of persecution and peace— we were created so we could bring glory to God. The essence of glorifying God is to worship him. So this takes us to our second question. If worship is the purpose, the most obviously logical question is what is worship? And we see from the confession we see it's glorifying God and enjoying God. And on page 38 I'm going to start excuse me. Um in your book on pages 38 and 39 Um, Our author uh, has two quotes, one by R.C. Sproul and then one by John Piper, Um, and these are quotes about worship. The task that is given to mankind in creation is to bear witness to the holiness of God, to be his image bearer. We are made to mirror and reflect the holiness of God. We are made to be his ambassadors. And the key ideas here, in terms of worship, are that we're an image bearer and we reflect his holiness. And then Piper's quote: John Piper describes glorifying God this way. Glorifying means thinking and feeling and acting in ways that reflect his greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of his attributes and all of the sati- satisfying beauty of his manifold perfection. So in Piper's definition, he talks about, and I really like this, making much of God, that every opportunity is to make much of God. Of course, I love he increases, we decrease. Um, So when we praise another person, we raise their esteem in the eyes of another. But our author's quick to remind us that when we glorify God, we don't make him more glorious. He already is. When we glorify him, we're just simply displaying or showing his glory. When God made us, Genesis tells us that we were made in his image. A quarter is stamped, at least I think it still is, with the image of George Washington. He's not literally on the coin, but his image is a reflection of his facial characteristics, what he looked like. Um, And his image has been captured so that we can honor and remember our first president. Your children bear your physiological traits and mannerisms, which I think is really fun, because I worked in nursery on Sunday Work in the nursery. It's super great. <laughs> um, and I, first thing I do when I arrive is just make sure I know the names of all the kids because I want to get to know them. And there was a little girl I did not know, but I thought, wow, that face is so familiar. I, I think I've met her before. And when I learned it was Kennedy McDaniel, Rebecca F- Evans, I was like, oh, that's her mom. Like, I know that face. I recognize the image of her mom and that sweet little face. So um, we are the human image in this world designed to be the image-bearer, living letter of God before the world, pointing them to Christ and magnifying his greatness and worshiping him. Our task is to reflect the glory of God in all of our lives and, as we're doing that, to train our children to do the same. As we're worshiping, or not worshiping, what we're worshiping, we are training our children to do the same. On page 39... Um, I'm the, the author says, at any age in any season of life, life, we must remember that our chief purpose is to glorify God. Um, she writes, sometimes this can be eclipsed by the busyness of the tasks that fill up our day. And that's true. And I'm a list person, and I know that those tasks completely take me off the trajectory of just saying, okay, Lord, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross. Establish the work of my hands. Um, and... I found an article by Tyler Hawley. I, I don't know who he is personally, but um, on the this Desiring God website, and it says, Mothers show us more of God on this theme of making more of God. Practical ways mothers declare God's glory. And I thought this was good. I have a couple of things here. Motherhood reflects the glory of God. It is a particularly feminine shape of holiness that women of faith strive for as a creation. Mothers embrace the pain of their fallen nature. They embrace death, and from that death, life is born. In every birth, a mother gives of herself for the sake of her child. And, of course, that continues in the raising of her children. We often have to die to ourselves for things that we really desire, but if we did that, we would be negligent of our children. Motherhood reflects the glories of holy submission and tells the gospel story as they submit to the plan. We are we are revealing to our children the gospel um, as we submit to the Lord. Mothers nursing their babies, wiping a tear, giving tender correction, reflect the nurturing nature of God and his goodness. Mothers show us what God is like. It's a mother's love we see, um, And Christ, who longs to gather his people like a mother hen who would gather her chick under her wings. And then he concludes, mothers are everywhere if we only have eyes to see them. Motherhood is woven into the very fabric of creation. And God says that all of his creations teach us about his glory. Motherhood declares the glory of God. Motherhood um, uh, is, is... and I think it's probably why the, a good reason why the family is under such attack because the family and what we do as, as Christian women in, in caring for our children just declares God's glory, and of course Satan doesn't want that to be seen. Um, The second component of worship is enjoying God. Uh, I was talking with Callie. We were sharing our love for coffee. (laughs) In the morning, I enjoy a fresh hot cup, one, two, three, four, five cup of coffee. I enjoy the beauty of a sunrise, the smell of the ocean, and the coastal breeze on my face. I enjoy board games with my family, but these pale in the enjoyment of God. The enjoyment of God, on the one hand, is as vast and deep and wide as the ocean. I don't think we could ever plummet steps. Um, but on the other hand, it's quite simple. God is enjoyed in his attributes, his completed work of salvation. And we enjoy God in the contentment and satisfaction he gives. And frankly, our whole life is spent pursuing the enjoyment of God. And all of eternity will be uh, spent in an a perfect enjoyment. I think I've heard from the pulpit before, if you're not enjoying worship now, you're probably not going to enjoy eternity. I know it sounds kind of funny, but but we really are, we are enjoying God now, but that enjoyment will be perfected in heaven. Um, Psalm 16 describes the enjoyment of God. Verses five and six, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen from me in pleasant places. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasures for the present and pleasures for eternity. Or a third question is, why worship God? Why not Buddha, Muhammad, or any idol of the heart? Well, we worship God because he is worthy. Period. We worship God because he is worthy. And that word worthy encompasses so many things. We probably could spend semesters and semesters and semesters talk about that. Um, But worthiness, we are giving God what he is due as a creator and sustainer of the universe. But realizing too, um, he's worthy. While we were still sinners, he died for us, Um, he did not spare his own son. Worthy, it's an act of gratitude for all that he has done. And the author in this section uses the examples of Uzziah, Isaiah, and Moses to demonstrate God's worthiness. In each example, when any of them encountered the glory and holiness of God, they immediately encountered their feebleness, their powerlessness, and their speechlessness. Um, and, And in contrast to that, the Bible also reminds us of the futility of the idols of this world, I think you have all the scriptures written out for Isaiah and Jeremiah. I don't have time to read through those. But Psalm 135 is just a reminder of the idols that do not pale in comparison to God. It says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. As moms, these passages, uh, Fox says in her book, about Uzziah, Moses, and Isaiah are well worth reading in addition to passages describing the idols of the world. They remind us of the magnificence of the creator compared to the powerlessness of those idols. And sometimes those idols us a lot. They promise wonderful things, and they, they, they convince us that they'll demand nothing from us. But that's just not true. The only thing that we really can trust in is God. So fourth question, if God is worthy, why doesn't everyone worship him? Well, it was also good in Genesis at the dawn of creation. God set the light in the skies to fuel the night and day. He set the boundaries of the land and sea. He gave gave every green plant for food. He took the dust of the earth and formed man. And to man he gave the most perfect companion, and that's you, (laughs) and suitable helper woman. And there never since has not been a day without a disagreement or argument. You think about the garden and how lovely it was and just perfect companionship. We will have that again. We long for it. Um, To the man and woman he gave two commands. You can have all of these things this vast array of everything all these options but there's one thing you cannot have Um, and he did this because he wanted to draw Adam and Eve's attention to the fact that they were to only glorify obey enjoy and worship him and instead of enjoying that huge bounty of everything they were given him given Eve was deceived and ate the one thing that she could not have so she could be like God rather than be then God become her choice. And I think it's something we understand. I've certainly been guilty. We have a bounty of choices, but I want the one thing that I'm not supposed to have, which is, is would be good that I don't have it. And through the false sin entered the world. The pattern for man became the glorification of himself rather than God. The God-given pur- purpose for man to worship became woefully misdirected. The question became not if he will worship, but what or whom he will worship. Um, If we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping something else. And the object of worship comes in many forms. What will make me happy and satisfied? What will help me gain the things I want? What will make me look successful in the eyes of the world? The easiest way to identify the idol that we worship is to fill the blank in this sentence. I will be happy or fulfilled or satisfied if blank. And y'all can fill it in. Um, and, and, you know, probably there are times when we find ourselves dissatisfied and there is something we just think, gosh, if I could just this or I could just that, you know, then I would be, but it's not true. Um, well, the fall became an increase. Let me make a quick application to, um, the impact of the fall on with secular culture on motherhood, because I think even in the church, we can fall prey to ideas and uh, things that come in the fall. Um, and with the and becoming an increasingly post-Bible society, um, it's really created a muck of motherhood and um, motherhood design. And a lot's been done to try to undermine the creational role gifted by God to women. It's a gift to us. Even in the church, um, in Sunday school classrooms and pulpits, some of these ideas trickle in. Sometimes even on well-meaning um, websites, we find parental advice. It's not always biblical. And we feel sometimes the pressure mounts to conform. Um, but in, in, in its extreme effect, the fall has given rise to public thought that marriage and motherhood are oppressive. Women are deceived into thinking that other things other than what God has given them, given them will make them whole happy and complete. Um, Susan Foe, in her book, Women and the Word of God, and this was written quite some time ago, exposes the writings of Barbara Frieden. And she wrote, this was before I was born, um, The Feminine Mystique, as the sexual revolution was being birthed in the 1960s. And that philosophy has really had huge impacts on motherhood over the past 50 years as well as homemaking, which is a dignified, necessary, and vital calling that God has given us. And she writes this, full-time homemaking is a trap, a limit to personal growth, and a waste of talents. The intelligent and able woman confined to the home will shrivel up and die. Homilies on the potential creativity of homemaking or on the importance of motherhood are part of the deception trying to keep women in their place. It's a lot (laughs) to take in, right? Um, And we've all heard it, maybe from close friends and family around the dinner table and at the cocktail party. You're losing out by staying home and raising children. I certainly heard, why are you wasting your education? it's, and other people. It's just too hard to be at home with kids all the time. You know, your brain will rot. You'll never be fulfilled to be your true self. If you stay bound, home bound to domestic chains and raising children, a successful career will help you be fulfilled and gain admiration from family and friends. Who's going to take care of your children? No problem. The school. The school system can do a better job raising your children. Um, anyway, how could you possibly maintain sanity by being at home with your children? Um, and so, I'm not slamming work outside the home. I've worked outside the home with my children, but the idea that motherhood and um, and and being at home and caring for your what those three priorities—remember, God, your husband, your family—that. That is oppression, and it's not. It's God's gift to us. Um, And on page 48, um, she has this quote from Augustine I'd never seen before. It said, crooked paths, woe to the audacious soul, which hope by forsaking thee, hope by forsaking thee, or God, to gain something better. And we won't gain anything better if we're seeking something other than God. Okay, so our last question, so I can wrap up. So, what is the solution for those created to worship but bound by sin? On page 48, our author quotes author and teacher R.C. Sproul. He says, Loving a holy God is beyond our moral power. The only kind of God we love by our sinful nature is an unholy God, an idol made by our hands. Unless we are born of the spirit of God, unless God sheds his holy love in our hearts, unless he stoops in his grace to change our hearts, we will not love him. To love a holy God requires grace. Grace strong enough to pierce our hardened hearts and awaken our moribund souls. And of course, God has given us that grace. Shortly following the fall, God provided the already intended antidote in the first preaching of the gospel to the servant. And through the plan of redemption, it has always been Christ. And for our hearts to be changed... um, Uh, God's grace pierces our hardened hearts, and those hardened hearts are replaced with stones of flesh that are now governed by the Holy Spirit. And this changed heart makes possible what the author writes at the very end of the chapter on page 51. And she says, So our goal in worship is living out the truth of what we already are in Christ. So worship is living out the truth of what we already are in Christ. Now, to be in Christ is a phrase that we hear frequently, and it refers to the union we have in Christ. Um, Burke Parkins describes the union this way. The believer's union with Christ has been a long-neglected doctrine. God's word teaches us that we are chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and that we are united to Christ by God's justifying grace alone through our faith alone because of the atoning death of Christ alone. The nature of this union is not only that we are in Christ, we are in Christ, but that he is in us. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So at the root of our sanctification and what we're going to be reaching for with the ability now not to sin, not perfection, we're never going to achieve perfection, but the ability to call upon the Lord, resist resist temptation, resist those idols, pursue godliness, we can do that um, through our union with Christ. And then I'm going to go on. Steve Lawson says about this union in Christ, um, to be in Christ, first of all, means that we have a saving relationship with Christ and are brought into union and communion with him in such a way as we are in Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I love this. what is true of Christ becomes true of us, His grace and his resources become our experience and possession. So let me say that again: What is true of Christ? <clears throat> I will get it. I might, I might not I might just have to listen to the horse. His grace, sorry about that, his grace and his resources. So let me back up. What is true of Christ becomes true of us. His grace and his resources become our experience and possession. When you read that phrase in him, in Christ, repeated over and over again in Ephesians, um, we were chosen in Christ and we were predestined in Christ. It goes all the way down to the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Spirit in Christ. So... The life of Christ is now in us by virtue of our being in Christ and Christ in us. It's a double union, if you will. My entire life is now lived for Christ, but the life I lived, I live by virtue of being in Christ. His grace, his sufficiency, and the riches of his mercy are now available to me. And I hope that that's really encouraging to you, because apart from God, we can do nothing. And we're going to struggle and wrestle with, and I do certainly, um, struggle and wrestle, um, you know, with those idols. And, And the book mentioned in the first chapter, and it's so true, like, you didn't think you were impatient you thought you were kind. <laughs> you thought you you never said an, a mean word to any whatever, word to anyone. But motherhood just, and especially sometimes it's particular children, have ways of just it start all starts to bubble up, right? <laughs> you know, you do things that you never thought you would do, or say things you never thought you would say. And we can, and of course, we don't feel good about it. We're we're overwhelmed, and we we feel awful. And so we say, how do we do this? Who's going to deliver me from this? this being in Christ. It's um, being in union with Christ through the Holy Spirit. Um, and so um, through the union with Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who teaches us the ways of God and empowers our will and our mind to worship God, pursuing, pursuing holiness and godliness. And our author says on page 51, and I'll, I'm ending with this, um, because we are in Christ, we have died to ourselves. That self was enslaved to sin. In Christ, we have risen through his resurrection to new life, to seek all things in Christ. Um, And so as your heart is turned to God in worship, you will grow and flourish as you put off the old self and its idols. And the exciting thing is, is not only is that work being perfected in you, but in your children you know and they're watching you. They're watching you wrestle with that. They're watching you turn to Jesus. they're and and you're leading them to do the same. So sometimes those trials can are well, they are they're sanctified trials. Um, so I want us to conclude reading Colossians chapter three verses twelve to seventeen. Um, one of the things that's really important is as we're thinking about the idols, is it's not just so much, I'm not going to worship these things. Of course, we want to turn away, for sure. But remember that as we're turning away, we're turning to. We take our gaze off of the old. We have it on the new, off the idols, onto God. And so this is actually in your discussion questions that you have. (laughs) Um, Just to meditate on this this week, to maybe consider one of these attributes and ask God for the grace to grow this in you um, and as a part of your worship. So let's read this together. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.